The Futurist AI Summit podcast by Washington Post Live is presented by IBM and Intel. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello. That was a long quote from you, Alex. Um, my name is Garrett Devink. I am a tech reporter at the Washington Post based in San Francisco. And I'm joined by Alex Wang, who you just saw that great inter- intro about. Um, it's really cool to see so many people here. Thank you so much for coming. This event was really oversubscribed. And I think you know we both go to a lot of events. We're both in San Francisco, usually. And it's, it's cool to come here to the other side of the country and see you know, just the level of interest. And like in, in SF, it's kind of everyone, everything everyone's been talking about. Maybe we're even a little bit sick about it, but it's cool to say, OK, it's not just us. It's not just the weird you know, hippie commune out in the West Coast that's talking about this stuff. So thank you all for coming. Um, Alex, I think we can just kind of jump right into it. But I just want to make sure for people who maybe haven't heard of scale or maybe have heard of you but don't really know what you do, can you just in a couple sentences explain you know, your company? Like, how are you different from a company like OpenAI or Google or Microsoft that's also doing AI right now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I started the company back in 2016. Uh, I was studying artificial intelligence at MIT uh, and became, uh, this was the year when DeepMind came out with AlphaGo, when uh, Google released TensorFlow, and it became very clear that artificial intelligence, even at that time, was going to be one of the most important technologies, uh, certainly of my lifetime. And I started Scale really to build the foundations and power the development of AI with the most critical piece, the data. Um, since then, uh, since starting the company in 2016, over the past seven years, we've been a part of uh, every major advancement in artificial intelligence. We've worked with many of the large autonomous vehicle efforts, including General Motors, Toyota, and many of the large automakers. Uh, we've worked closely with the US government uh, and the DOD on many of the initial uh, AI programs. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that here in a bit. Uh, and then we've worked uh, very closely with the entire emergence of generative AI and large language models. We've worked with OpenAI since 2019, uh, innovated on many novel methods and use of data for artificial, artificial intelligence, and work at this point with the, uh, the majority, vast majority of the AI ecosystem, players like Meta, Microsoft, and many others. So it's kind of like picks and shovels of like this AI gold rush. Like you're selling the tools to help these companies develop these chatbots and LLMs and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think our differentiated view is perhaps that uh, you know this entire industry needs platforms and it needs uh, infrastructure to enable to be successful. And so our view is the best way to enable that all to happen is to power it uh, in infrastructure platform that everybody can use and the entire industry can benefit from. Um, I mean, you mentioned the government. Obviously, your quotes, you know, your your congressional testimony, talking a lot about military use, talking a lot about China geopolitics. Uh, you have a $250 million deal with the Pentagon. I mean, that's a serious amount of money. Um, I mean, why, you know, coming from San Francisco, it's not something that we hear a lot. We don't talk that much about even government tech and especially military tech. Um, a lot of people out there are still uncomfortable with that. Um, why did you choose to kind of position your company this way to, you know, really aggressively sell to the Pentagon? What What's behind that choice? Yeah, so... I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, the, uh, for those of you who watched Oppenheimer, uh, the, <laughs> it was literally filmed uh, in many places from my childhood. And both my parents worked for the National Lab uh, in Los Alamos working on uh, you know, fusion physics and, and weapons technology. And um, so I grew up in this, in this hotbed of you know, these incredibly brilliant scientists who uh, had made it their career and made the decision to de- dedicate their lives towards building very advanced 
uh, technology to ensure that we maintain US leadership. Um, and uh, as artificial intelligence became a more and more real technology over the past decade, it became pretty clear that this technology was one of the very few technologies that had the ability to impact you know, the balance of, of power globally. Um, and in particular, the sort of, you know, China published their strategy, Made in China 2025, of which uh, chips and AI are some of the key tenets. You know, they talk specifically about how they believe a future world will be uh, primarily dominated by chips and semiconductors, and they need to invest heavily into that technology to enable future technologies such as AI. And so, um, in particular, I, I went to China uh, in 2018. I visited China. One of our investors organized this trip to understand the Chinese tech ecosystem. And in one of the companies, um, a Chinese facial recognition company, the, you walk in the lobby, and there's a giant screen that shows like a video feed of the lobby. And your face immediately gets recognized as you walk in. And real time, you see your face be recognized. It recognized who you are, your major demographics, like all this, like very, very dystopian. This very dystopian tech demo, um, and uh, and this was back in 2018. And basically realized that other countries were going to be, uh, particularly China, was going to be very, very dedicated in using artificial intelligence to power their country's ambitions. Let's say, and this was, you know, uh, this is well reported. They use facial recognition technology very actively to suppress Uyghurs um, and, uh, and for in building a global surveillance state. And it became pretty clear that you know, if you believe that AI is going to be one of these critical technologies, there had to be American companies who could help bridge the gap between Silicon Valley and DC, and could help bridge the gap between this incredible wellspring of technology and innovation that was happening in San Francisco, happening in Silicon Valley, and bring that technology to the US government to actually empower America to stay ahead, to stay in a leadership position. Right. I mean, we just heard from Leader Schumer, and he was talking, you know, he said, we are ahead, or the US is ahead, but the gap is narrowing. That's sort of his characterization of it. Um, you know, you and I were just talking backstage about chips and kind of, you know, how we're, you know, a lot of time when we talk about AI, we think about software, we think about things that are, you know, learning themselves. But at the, at the end of the day, hardware is a huge part of this. And so, I mean, it, do you think that characterization of, you know, ahead but the gap is narrowing is accurate? And, and how do you think about this, this race or this arms race, so to speak? Yeah, I, you know what I would probably say is certainly um, the US is, is ahead. The technologies were invented and innovated and developed predominantly in the United States. Um, uh, London, as well, you know, the UK as well has been a key, uh, a key innovation hub for the technology. And, and so we're ahead today. I think China has incredible ambitions uh, to catch up from a technological perspective. And they've demonstrated in the past in both software and other AI technologies a clear ability to you know, catch up and in some cases even surpass US tech capabilities. If we look at the last generation of artificial intelligence, uh, computer vision technology, so being able to understand images and videos uh, for technologies like facial recognition or self-driving cars, um, uh, China was behind. You know, these technologies were created and developed in the United States. China recognized that, immediately created very large domestic industries uh, to fuel this AI development in facial recognition, in autonomous vehicles, uh, and so on. And now if you look at where is the cutting edge computer vision technology being built, it's actually in China. You know, they, they successfully caught up and got ahead. And so my fear is in this, you know, in this current wave is that 
um, in large language models, in cutting edge generative AI and, and AI technologies, the same might happen yet again. Um, you know, we saw, it was reported earlier this year that uh, China has bought $5 billion worth of high-end GPUs, predominantly NVIDIA GPUs. Um, that's an incredible investment. That's a very, uh, that's a very large and, and decisive investment by Chinese tech giants to catch up to American technology. And in the backdrop of, of everything that's happening now in AI is, is the scaling laws. And this is, I think, you know, it's sort of uh, a little bit behind the, behind the scenes, but this is the underlying um, trend that's defining everything, which is, uh, you know, simply put, we're, we're using just dramatically more compute, dramatically bigger models, and dramatically more data to build dramatically more powerful algorithms. So in the past four years, uh, there's been a thousand-fold increase in the amount of data used to power large-scale AI systems. So in, you know, in, uh, in 2019, the models were about 2 billion uh, parameters in size, and now they're about 2 trillion uh, parameters in size. Um, the, you know, many companies are on the record for over the next three years, roughly three years, for another 100-fold scale-up in computational capacity for these, uh, for these algorithms. So over the course of you know, that seven-year span, it's a 100 thousand-fold increase in the amount of computational power applied to training these large uh, generative models. And that, you know, there's very few industries where you see a, over a seven-year period, a hundred thousand-fold increase in, in resources. And so this creates, a lot of, this creates a lot of pressure in how countries think about this technology. And in particular, it creates a lot of pressure on the supply chain. So um, as kind of as you mentioned, this depends a lot on hardware. It depends a lot on high-end GPUs, particularly GPUs uh, manufactured and produced by NVIDIA. And uh, you know, we saw recently uh, uh, increased um, sort of export controls mm -hmm. on, on chips. You know, I think this is going to be an increasingly hotbed issue for the US versus other countries. Um, and uh, today, 100% of high-end GPUs are manufactured in Taiwan at TSMC. Right. So the, there's a very clear geopolitical tension that only increases, you know, it will increase literally 100-fold over the next three years, which is that today there's an entire, the choke point of the entire AI industry and all AI progress comes in these fabs in Taiwan at TSMC. And so if you, you know, uh, if there's a lot of ways this plays out, there's many scenarios, uh, but in one such scenario where China deems that they're falling uh, dramatically far behind, it makes it far more likely that they'd choose to invade Taiwan uh, and either you know, all, the, all, the uh, the, all the fabs in Taiwan blow up and TSMC blows up and set back AI progress uh, across the board, or they, they seize them and then use that production solely for their own purposes. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley, I mean, prominent AI leaders, powerful AI leaders who are you know talking about AI algorithms beginning to outthink humans in years rather than decades? And I think you know I've been very skeptical about this, but these are very smart people who have serious chops and they have huge amounts of followings within the industry. And some of them say you know the worst thing you could do is attach something like that to a military system. And so I mean, how do you engage with that, or how do you think about that uh, belief? that AI will you know, outstrip human ability to control it imminently? Like, do you take that seriously at all? Or like, like where does, what do you think of that? I think if you look at the, the existing technology that we have, as well as the technology that's coming 
down the pipe and, and sort of like all of the research and understanding of, of where this technology is going, I don't think that's a reasonable fear uh, as of now. Um, I do think that this technology is incredibly powerful, both for use of ensuring that you know, democratic powers stay on top and that, that the United States maintains a leadership position. And uh, there's, there's real misuse cases. And there's things that we need to be concerned about the technology being used for. Um, you know, our view is that, uh, that AI, you know, if you look at the history of, of warfare, it's punctuated by technology, technological advancements that create asymmetric advantage. Right. That's sort of the, you know, summarize uh, centuries and centuries of warfare. And, um, and artificial intelligence is one of a small handful of technologies. It's not the only technology, but it's one of a small handful of technologies that has the potential to shift that balance of power going forward. Um, you know, we talked about this uh, almost exactly one year ago with, with Eric Schmidt, and I think that the, you know, uh, the CCP is very clear about their ambitions. They're very clear that they believe, you know, there's, there's some um, uh, writings that they have where they talk about AI as a potential leapfrog technology for the PLA versus the US DOD. They believe that, um, you know, if they overinvest into AI and the United States uh, by, uh, in parallel, underinvest into artificial intelligence because we're gonna overinvest into maintaining our existing systems, they could actually develop far superior capabilities than, than us in the United States. So. Um, Broadly speaking, if you, if you zoom all the way out, I think this is, this is one of the key technologies for military power and hard power over the, next, over the coming years. And uh, we, need to be, we need to be thinking about it as such. Do you draw any like, red lines for yourself, though? Because you know, obviously, you're providing infrastructure for the government. You're, you're, you're providing tools for the government to you know, crunch their data, to get smarter, to get faster. Um, but you know, if, if there was a bid for you know, say a couple of years, you know, your own tech is advanced, and there's a bid for some kind of maybe cyber weapon that would go and disrupt an, an, an enemy nation's energy infrastructure at a time of war, and you had the capacity to build something like that, would you bid for for a, a offensive weapon like that? Yeah. So our view, you know, the, the DoD has actually spent a lot of time thinking about these these questions, and I think the the ethics of the use of artificial intelligence has been. Uh, one of the primary pillars of, of their exploration and their effort. Um, the DOD published uh, their ethical AI principles uh, a number of years ago, long before the technology was, was even as powerful as today, let alone even more powerful, to do a lot of, I think, preemptive thinking about what happens as this technology becomes more and more powerful. And, and I think they're very thoughtful, and I think, um, in general, our view is that uh, we, should, we should build technologies that adhere, ultimately, to the DOD's ethical AI principles. Okay. The, there's a, there's an, yet... An additional piece, which is the, um, let's say, how do you enforce that we actually adhere to these principles, right? And uh, you know, our view is that there has to be a, uh, a lot of advancements in testing and evaluation of AI systems. Uh, I think the, the greatest fear of many military commanders I've spoken to is that there will be some decision that's made rightly or wrongly, to deploy a very immature AI system that could then create dramatic risks of uh, our soldiers on the battlefield. And so I think you know, we need to be thinking about what does it mean to actually have mature AI technology versus hype-driven AI technology, and how do we ensure that any technology that we deploy goes through the proper rigorous testing and evaluation of you know, red teaming and, and deep, deep uh, sort of uh, principles-based assessment to ensure that we have uh, you know, actually effective systems. Right, right. And I mean, like, are you 
do you think we're there? Like, you know, because there's also some autonomous weapon systems that are already out there, you know, that other countries are using. There's, you know, drones that are able to kind of like detect certain targets and make decisions sort of on their own based on their own programming without a human necessarily in the loop. And so in some ways it feels like this stuff is already getting out of our hands. You know, our view and in, in our conversations with most of the leaders in the DOD is that humans are always quite necessar necessarily in the loop. You know, the, the technology as it stands today is primarily useful as a decision aid, not a decision maker. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of a very, uh, very advanced military analysis on this matter. I think, you know, if you were to sum it up overall, it's that there's today, one of the key problems impacting our military is that there's, there's too much information but too little intelligence. Right. You know, there's, there's an inundation of information coming from all sorts of different sensors and platforms and the ability to synthesize that into core intelligence that can, that can help military leaders and commanders understand what they should do, that's, that's the missing gap. That's very different from, I think, fully autonomous weaponry or fully autonomous operations. I think it's more about decision aid and helping human decision makers and human operators be able to operate more effectively. Um, you know, a lot of your business model, is, you know, requires contract workers to kind of like assess technology, label things. This is something that obviously not just you, but the entire AI industry, there's a lot of humans that are behind it. And some colleagues of mine earlier this this summer reported, you know, went and spoke to some contractors of yours in the Philippines who, you know, weren't getting all the money that they believed that they were entitled to. And, you know, I'd, you don't need to talk specifically about your situation, but if you talk, if you look at the industry as, as a whole, there's still a lot of human involvement, right? And, you know, where in terms of that contract workforce, like, is that something that you think for years and years and years as AI continues to get smarter, we will need, you know, hundreds of thousands of humans to be involved in that painstaking work? Or is that something that we is only really at the beginning of the tech development and then down the road it might not be necessary anymore? Our view is that humans will always be very, very critical t towards the development of AI technology. Um, and, and so the, there will always be humans in loop. There will always be humans involved in the actual development of the algorithms mm. um, that, that, that are used. You know, uh, back in 2019, we actually worked very closely with OpenAI to innovate and develop some of the uh, today, very cutting-edge techniques to enable humans to provide input and preferences into the models to be able to guide their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, we know we developed this technique called reinforcement learning with human feedback, RLHF, that has now become a cornerstone of the entire AI industry in ensuring that we build very helpful and harmless AI models. Um, there have been, uh, you know, OpenAI has published some of their research on this. They've they've reported that. Uh, you know, but through use of reinforcement learning with human feedback, they're able to achieve an improvement in the helpfulness of the models equivalent to a hundredfold increase in model size. Um, simply put, what that means is, you know, there's a uh, there's a almost a quantum leap forward in in the ability to build AI systems that actually adhere to human intent, adhere to human principles because of this technology that we've developed with them. Um, we've just got a minute left, and I want to ask you the same question that um, we asked. Senator Schumer, which is, you know, you've you've testified a lot. You've talked a lot about, you know, concerns, risks. You've mentioned even in this conversation about, you know, guardrails and testing and evaluation. I mean, what? But if you just zoom out and think about AI in general and how quickly this technology is moving, uh, what keeps you up at night? Uh, I think I think global proliferation of the technology is the most concerning trend today. 
Um, if you look at what's happened just in the past year since ChatGPT, you've seen uh, it become a, a primarily domestic technology to being an incredibly international technology. Some of the most advanced open source models were developed in Paris and France. Um, there's been very large open source models being developed in uh, UAE and, and in the Middle East. And then China, as I mentioned, has bought $5 billion worth of high-end chips to put, you know, put their own hat into the ring of AI development. And the technology is, is at risk of real misuse. You know, some of the risks that keep me up at night the most are misuse in is cyber attacks and misuse in bioweaponry. Um, and these are some of the, the, the use cases of the technology that I think could, could really negatively impact humanity and could have very, very negative consequences for us, for us all. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Alex. Thanks, Garrett. Good morning. I'm Heather Long, a columnist and editorial board member at The Post. And I'm thrilled to be joined this morning with Gita Gopinath, the first deputy managing director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and a renowned economist who just got back from Morocco, I believe. So OK, we've talked about the politics of AI. We've talked about the defense capabilities of AI. Let's talk about the economics of AI. And the number one question that we get at the post is, how many jobs are going to be lost from AI? You know, is, how, what's the best estimate from the IMF? Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Heather. And indeed, that is a top question that we are studying. So I think the way you want to think about it is what fraction of the labor force is exposed to the new technology, and especially generative AI. And it varies by country. So if you take the case of the US or the UK, we're talking about an exposure of 60 to 70% of the labor force that's exposed to AI. But that's not enough to know, because the technology could be great in the sense that it could complement the workforce, which is raise the productivity of the worker. But alternatively, it could be a substitute for the worker. So that's the important question is, so not just the level of exposure, but whether it complements human labor or it substitutes for human labor. And that's where we've been looking at this more carefully to see how much of substitution might you see. So if you take the case of the US, we have an estimate that about 60% of the workforce is exposed to AI, but only about, and about half of that gets a complementary effect. So about, we're talking about 30% then of the labor force for whom this technology can be productivity enhancing and can complement labor as we're substituting it. Similarly in the UK. But then if you look at, for instance, a country like India, where a large portion of the workforce is in, say, agriculture, their exposure to AI is only around 30%. If you look at Brazil and South Africa, we're looking at numbers like 40%. So again, I get the question is that you know, this is clearly a general purpose technology, which is why it's having such a wide effect on we're discussing this here, uh, but the question is what's going to be the impact on, uh, on productivity, and that varies by country. And it also varies, I think, by gender. If I read some of your research from the IMF, can you tell us why women may be more impacted? Yeah, so if you look at, again, in terms of exposure, women tend to be in areas like uh, in the retail sector and mostly services sector where there is greater exposure to AI. But again, that could, it's kind of, if it's an even bag in terms of whether it's helping raise productivity of women or substituting for it. So that's a mixed bag, but they certainly have higher exposure. Now, in, again, in countries where they're 
agriculture-driven economies where women are also employed, they don't get affected as such. So let me give you, for instance, an example of this difference between exposure versus uh, you know, complementarity and substitutability. Radiologists, for instance, we know are one occupation which is very exposed to uh, AI. I mean, the whole image recognition, the ability to detect anomalies and images, something very powerful that can be done. But at the same time, it's unlikely that society is going to say, well, we're going to let a machine entirely determine uh, and do the diagnosis, like completely replace a human being with a machine. It's much more dangerous to do that. So this is an area where there is a lot of complementarity, and you could be effectively raising the productivity of radiologists. But on the other hand, if you look at, say, clerical workers who are very exposed to AI, in that particular case, you know, the cost of errors are somewhat smaller. Uh, and therefore, those are the kinds of jobs that will get replaced. Hmm. You also mentioned productivity. I mean, if anybody takes their economics class, their first one in college, you know, you basically learn that things can get better, uh, growth can happen if you either work more hours or if you work smarter, if you work more productively. Uh, it sounds like you keep using this word complementary um, for AI. How much of a boost could this potentially be? Is, is this comparable to an industrial revolution? How do we think through how this could boost global well-being? Yep. I mean, economies are kind of looking for the holy grail of where the next boost in productivity will come from. And AI certainly offers great promise. So the question is, you know, what kind of an effect will it have? Uh, we have what we call firm-level studies done, you know, using firm-specific data, which shows that the effect can be, based on current studies, can be quite substantial. On average, it can raise labor productivity growth by two to three percentage points. Now, just to put that in context, over the last 15 years, on average, labor productivity growth in the U.S. has been a little over 1%. So if you're going to add two to three percentage points, that would be very large. And some of these numbers, in fact, you know, studies get numbers close to seven percentage points, which are large. But I think we should be very careful because you know, to extrapolate from these numbers to what we might see for the economy as a whole, because one, this is on very specific firms. Uh, it's not clear whether it's going to apply to other sectors. Uh, and secondly, one of the things that we've always struggled with when it comes to general purpose technology is to envision what the economy will look like. You know, there are going to be occupations and sectors that we cannot imagine at this point that may come around. And therefore, it's just inherently very difficult. The last time we had a boom in labor productivity was in the second half of the 1990s, thanks to the uh, IT boom. Uh, and that was when productivity growth was around 2.5%. After that, it's been around 1% on average. So again, uh, the prospects are there, but it's an inherently complex estimate to make. The estimates that are coming out seem very promising. Yeah, and but I wonder as well, you were speaking about the differences between the impact on the United States and the UK and other advanced economies versus what we traditionally call developing world. Does this just exacerbate inequality? Are you concerned it just creates this really big divide between winners and losers? It is going to uh, affect different segments of the labor force in different ways within countries and, of course, across countries. So if, let me start with, if I look across countries, uh, you know, developing countries have 
uh, rely to an important extent in terms of their growth, in terms of their exports, on their labor abundance, on the relative labor abundance, right? Uh, and since it's clear that this new technology will displace the need for some kinds of labor for sure, that puts developing countries at uh, a disadvantage. Secondly, to be able to use this technology, you need vast amounts of data. The, the infrastructure is needed for that. These are expensive uh, investments. And again, developing countries don't are in a disadvantage at this point relative to advanced economies. So that could generate uh, greater disparity. Now, within countries, again, it's different depending upon whether you have a college degree and you're able to then therefore you know, enhance your productivity because of this new technology versus if you're going to get replaced by it. One interesting difference relative to what we saw during the last uh, revolution, uh, you know, kind of automation-driven effects, is that we might see some leveling off also. We might see some less polarization, especially at the lower to mid-end. Because what we're seeing is that the experience that comes with working multiple years, that what you gain from that and the premium that's on it might actually shrink mm. because that knowledge that comes with experience can be much easily transferred to newer entrants into the labor force. Uh, and that is something that we, we are seeing in some uh, experiments in the data. Yeah, that would be a huge shift for sure for many of us and how we think about our careers and our lives. Um, so the last panel was talking us through some of the risks to a potential global war or other tragedy that could come if AI is misused. We obviously think a lot about financial stability, you know, what could happen to the global economy. I was struck, you know, Gary Gensler, the head of the American Securities and Exchange Commission, obviously he has to spend his day thinking about risks to the economy, and he recently said that he thought it was almost certain in the next 10 years AI could cause a financial crisis. That really surprised me. Do you agree with that? What, what would drive a financial crisis? I mean, again, you know, we, the, the promises of, uh, from AI are great, and you see the financial services industry you know, grabbing onto it, but the risks are immense, and, and the risks range all the way from you know, ethical issues to existential issues, so it's a huge spectrum, and you've been covering this in the, with your uh, previous speakers. So yes, you know, as the IMF, we focus more on issues of economic stability and financial stability. So let's look at, for instance, on financial stability. I can go into many different areas, but one of the things you always worry about when it comes to financial stabilities and what creates systemic risks is a herd mentality, a herding behavior, kind of sentiment-driven uh, investment. And in this environment where you have very few models that everybody relies on for making predictions, for making decisions, for instance, on what to invest in and where to invest, we worry that that could just put herd mentality on steroids. And that is uh, an important risk that we have to pay attention to. The second thing is this technology, remarkable as it is, it's also hard to explain what and how the outcomes are coming about because it's incredibly complicated. And so exposed to, you know, when, you, when things go wrong and you have to make a, give your explanation to your shareholders about why exactly did you make these decisions, that's going to, the lack of transparency, the lack of uh, being able to, to tell what's driving these decisions is, is going to be very difficult. So that's one whole set of issues. Then of course there is the other, sep the other set of issues would come with uh, data privacy. Hmm. Uh, 
the data has to be, in most cases, confidential. There is a real risk that with this kind of technology that you could be putting out unknowingly, unintentionally confidential data uh, in the public domain, and that is incredibly risky. We worry about what happens if you have you know, AI bots that are basically determining underwriting standards or figuring out who gets a loan, because we know that embedded bias is a big problem with uh, this technology. So there are multiple aspects uh, that we're paying close attention to. You know, another theme that we keep hearing over and over again today is the need for global rules around AI because of these challenges and risks, whether military, financial, or data privacy that you've just spoken about. Um, but that's really hard to get all these nations to agree on anything. We've seen many trade issues in just the last few years. What gives you hope that we could potentially have some sort of global rules of the world for AI? I am hopeful because I think everybody uh, across the world recognizes that there are some very big risks associated with this technology. And I have the opportunity to sit at G7 and G20 meetings, and I haven't heard disagreement on this. I think there is, a, there is common agreement that this uh, requires world attention. There's also common understanding that no country is alone in this and can handle it all because this is a truly globally cross-cutting issue. Uh, so in that sense, it, there is a similarity to climate. And to the extent that we have uh, been, you know, we have the Paris Agreement, for instance, which, you know, it does have its limitations, but that is a global agreement that came about, kind of have a common framework to think about how to deal with climate change. You could see a parallel for work on uh, AI and generative AI. Similarly, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is this fantastic expert group that g gives you knowledge about how to deal with climate change. Something similar on AI would be very helpful. Well, I hope you're right, although we know there's been struggles on the climate agreement. Uh, so we've been asking every panelist so far, what keeps you up at night on AI? You've already outlined a number of challenges, but it, you know, what's that, that top issue that you worry about? Well, I think firstly, Things are moving so quickly, and I, I sit in on and listen to enough technologists who, uh, you know, spoke you completely, telling you that this can all change dramatically in a year or in two years. Uh, so it's just the speed with which the technology is progressing relative to the speed with which policymakers are able to keep up with it. And like I said, the multiple dimensions of how this could impact. Uh, societies is immense. For instance, I do worry that as phenomenal as this technology is, it's heavily driven in the private sector by mm. private money. Uh, you know, if you go back and you look at, for instance, 2014, 2015, where did most of the machine learning models come from? They came from academia, they came from universities. And now, if you look at where the newest models are coming from, they're entirely from the private sector. And there's a huge gap, right? I mean, there's a huge difference. So I think that's, it would be a mistake not to ensure that there is enough public funding, for instance, for universities, to make sure that they are able to also be at the frontier producing this knowledge, because that's how we as a society will also figure out what's best and what's not, not as good. Well, let's end on a little bit of an optimistic note. Um, if you follow economics, the United States GDP number came out this morning. It was a blockbuster number, growth in the third quarter in the United States of 4.9%. You know, we were supposed to be in a recession now. Instead, we've accelerated growth. How did this happen? How did we end up 
in such a good place. Yeah, no, it is. I just to concur, it is a blockbuster number. If you look at how often a number like that shows up, it's around 10% of the time in terms of, you know, if you look at the distribution of uh, growth rates. So this is, uh, this is a very, uh, very, you know, strong growth number. It has come in substantially above what we were expecting for this quarter. In, the, in terms of why, again, we were expecting it to be a lower number, so we're going to have to go back and, and rethink this. But what is true is the US labor market is very strong. It, yes, we have seen some softening, but it is still an incredibly strong labor market, and that plays a very important role in consumer decisions and spending. We still have the, uh, in the residual effects of what came with the you know, support that was provided to households and firms and including the, you know, the desire to now to kind of rebound from the pandemic, that effect is still there. Uh, and fiscal policy in the US is obviously highly procyclical, which is it's very loose, depending upon you know, looking at where these indicators are. It is a question of how much that is contributing to these growth numbers. I think our assessments are that could be relatively small, but still, uh, you know, we have a fiscal policy that is really, in terms of a deficit of 8%, is quite large given where the economy is. And lastly, can this keep going? Can the U.S. manage this soft landing to avoid a recession? You know, you all, for instance, have forecast slower growth for the United States and much of the world next year. But obviously, this year has defied expectations, at least in, in this country. Yeah. The resilience of the U.S. is, rem is remarkable. And that kind of actually also stands out relative to what we're seeing in other parts of the world. So there was a time when there was a little bit more commonality. But the U.S. is doing, is, growth is much stronger, for instance, than what we're seeing in Europe. Uh, where, on the other hand, indicators are more tipping towards contraction territory. This is a bit, there is a big difference here. Our baseline is, you know, for a soft landing in the U.S., and this additional data point certainly makes the case stronger. But that said, I mean, again, looking ahead, I think the one thing we have to notice is the fact that long-term rates, long-end long interest rates are going up, and they've gone up quite substantially over the last few weeks, and that we expect will feed into uh, you know, spending behavior. So it probably can't keep going like this. Probably not more 4.9% if we meet again in January. I would be very surprised, yes. All right. Uh, Gita Gopinath, thank you for your comments and insights today. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Jean Meserve, a security analyst for Canada's CTV News and also host of the NatSec Tech podcast. Thrilled to have with me here today Dr. Melvin Greer. Uh, Dr. Greer is chief data scientist at Intel, where he is using artificial intelligence and other technologies uh, to accelerate the transformation of data into a strategic asset for global organizations. Dr. Greer is also a senior advisor to the FBI's Information Technology and Data Division. Intel describes AI as one of its superpowers. We're going to delve into what that means and also talk 
more broadly about the technology, its potential benefits, and how we manage the risks, some of which have been talked about this morning. We're also going to talk about where AI might be heading. Dr. Greer, thanks so much for being with us. I am so happy to be here. Thanks. Great. Um, so from your perspective, what potential benefits do you see AI having for society? You know, Gene, Intel is moving the idea of AI everywhere as a concept forward. As we've heard, there's almost every industry out there that's adopting or working to adopt AI, and the folks that are adopting it are actually having some really great successes. They're improving people's lives in a very substantial way. And while you know, there's the new shiny object of generative AI that we've been hearing a lot about, generative AI is just a very sliver of all the AI that we can talk about. We are actually seeing just the very smallest of potential about where AI and what it can do and where it will do. And so from an Intel perspective, AI everywhere is really about ensuring that AI capabilities are available to anyone through any device, anywhere. And we're really excited about being able to be an enabler for this AI everywhere uh, idea. What specific industries do you see benefiting from the use of AI? Well, there are a, a whole host of them, but I'll just uh, mention three. The first one is healthcare. Healthcare is great. We're seeing advances in immunotherapy, personalized medicine, better remediation of uh, disease and research in ways we haven't seen before. I'm also excited about the work we're seeing in public sector around transportation and, and smart cities. I'd say that we're seeing some really great work in finance. So personalized financial tools, fraud, waste, and abuse analysis, things like that. And then environmental analysis, environmental factors in, associated with weather and, and climate. So these are really great areas where things are making material impact uh, with AI. So let's talk about the flip side, the risks. Um, disinformation. Disinformation is a serious problem. And it is one of the things that you know, we speak a lot about and we talk about. But AI is, in spite of all the technical capabilities we talk about, actually a very human-centric activity. And as a human-centric activity, we have the ability to shape AI for good as we elevate an awareness of the risks associated with AI. And so with that in mind, you know, Intel is very focused on this idea. We've, we've been working very tirelessly on security and, and trust in, as it relates to AI. We just released a new product called an AI Trust Authority, which helps with not only security and privacy, but also third-party attestation. These are the key elements that we feel are going to be required in order to eliminate and deal with some of these risks. There also has been a lot of concern about the embedding of bias and prejudice in these systems. Are you addressing that? Well, I'm very, I'm very concerned about it. I think one of the ways that we're actually really focused on it is we're increasing the amount of diversity and the number and types of people that are participating in the development of these AI solutions. And we'll, we can have a long conversation of diversity, and I can add more color to that. But what it comes down to is we need people who have people who are thinking different than we are, people who are anthropologists, ethicists, sociologists, community leaders, to be involved in the development and deployment of these technologies. Otherwise, we do run the risk of having to deal with more bias. 
also concerned about the violation of intellectual property rights. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that. I think one of the things we're interested in doing is advancing this idea of trust and security. And the way that we do that is through those products that I talked about. And what about cybercrime? and whether AI facilitates that. Yeah, so I think this is a serious concern, right? We're very interested in ensuring that we provide the guidance and the mechanisms to support an understanding of how people are using it. Intel has a, a AI ethics program, a bill of rights, if you will, that ensures that we have people who are consuming our capabilities, our technologies, that adhere to some basic uh, principles associated with how they're gonna be used. You talked a little bit about what this AI everywhere meant. Um, talk to us about why that's important. AI everywhere is important because it is so pervasive in the society that we live in. Our ability to deal with all of these great transformations is important. When we think about um, the way that public sector is using it to support citizen services, being able to get access to those services, aggregate those services and make it easy for people to be able to use them. AI Everywhere is impactful because it's very, very uh, broadly being developed and used across a wide spectrum of industries. How do you make sure it happens? Well, we continue to ask, participate. We get people to communicate with us. We want to involve more people in this activity. One of the things that we're doing is we're spending a lot of time in educational resources. You know, because there is a talent shortage with respect to AI. And, and one of the things we're really focused on in doing there is working with not only some of the R1 institutions, Intel's known for working with great large-scale institutions, but we have a community college program where we're working with 18 community colleges. You know, more than 50% of these community colleges are in environments or in areas that are working or supporting underserved populations. And so, you know, our ability to ensure that those skills get to more people in a much wider view is what is going to be required in order to ensure that people take a look at how this technology is being used ethically. Do you think there's some key to getting more minority participation in AI? Yeah, targets. We want, to, we, we want to target, and this is one of the reasons why we're what focused. What do you mean by that? Well, we opened a new office in Atlanta. We have a new office in Atlanta because we understand that that is one of the places in the U.S. where we have uh, some minority representation. Representation in general is really important. If you take a look at the new um, in, uh, fabrications that we're building in uh, Ohio, it's really important for us not only to work with great universities like Ohio State, but we're working with a whole series of universities that are outside of, of the uh, R1 institutions, so R2 institutions, historical black colleges and universities, other community colleges. And what this does, which is really, really important, is gets more people in the conversation around AI, gets more people involved in the evaluation and the potential harm and the benefits and it really means that we are able to deploy AI everywhere in a very reasonable and responsible way. Is it just about reaching people in community college and universities, or do you have to start younger? Is K through 12 really important here? Well, I'll tell you, as a, as a black data scientist and a fellow at Intel, representation is a big deal for me. And I spend a significant amount of time in K through 12 uh, working with students on robotics, 
data science, and leadership skills, because I want them to understand that there's an opportunity for them as well. Uh, we have the ability to harness the creativity and the innovation that comes from not only the diversity in, in between race, but also in uh, gender. We are focused very heavily on neurodivergent uh, capabilities that our employees and our customers represent to us. And so it's this kind of diversity that really is important. So do a little dream of vision for me. Look into your crystal ball and tell me what does the future hold, particularly for generative AI that has been so much topic of conversation today? Generative AI is going to continue to grow and it's going to be impactful. But in a much broader sense, AI is going to take on a real significant impact in the way we work, live, and play. As we move from Web 2 technologies, where we are focused more on consumption of technical capabilities, and move to Web 3 technologies, where we are advancing the creator part of technologies and supporting the creator, we will find that these, these new AI capabilities are going to be accelerants. They will be the catalyst for helping to move through that space. So what specifically do you think generative AI will be doing in five years? Well, there's a couple of things. I think first we have to think about the development community and the developer community. Generative AI is helping to harness the power of the developer community and Intel is absolutely focused on energizing that community in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, the reason people are really enamored with working with Intel on AI is not just because we do great silicon hardware, but because we're bringing hardware and software together. And so from a generative AI perspective, uh, and we're seeing this in our Intel developer community cloud. What we're seeing is that they are looking at open source software, open source hardware. They're igniting the, that combination. And what they're doing is they're creating whole new applications of this technology that we haven't seen before. What we are excited about is that when we help developers in this environment, because of the use of Intel's hardware acceleration and, and we teach them how to optimize software on our hardware, they're seeing a four to 10x improvement in performance. And what that means is faster applications development, faster application deployment from ideation to production. Are there any significant technological hurdles that need to become overcome in the near future? Yeah, and I think it's reasonable to conclude that people have identified environmental factors as one of those technological hurdles, as an example. We're talking about the energy consumption issue? Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. And so, you know, from our perspective, it's, it's an important thing to be considering. We're working very hard in Intel Labs on our next generation brain-inspired research. It's neuromorphic computing. And neuromorphic computing has three capabilities which uh, particularly address this environmental factor. The first is it is focused on very high speed in the very same way as the human brain operates. But also, it operates in extremely low power consumption much lower power than we do in, in today's environments, and then much smaller data sets. 
And so with that in mind, we think that this is going to be a precursor to the you know, kinds of solutions that are going to be required to overcome this environmental hurdle. So you're confident that the hurdles can, in fact, be overcome then? I'm confident that by talking about it, getting more people engaged, and getting some of the best minds that are kind of represented on this uh, uh, Washington Post Live activity, we're going to be able to solve some of that, yes. So bottom line, we've talked about the benefits. We've talked about some of the risks. Are you terrified or are you excited? I am so excited. Listen, the reason I'm excited is because, listen, my mom died of a terminal illness when I was uh, younger, and she didn't have the benefit of personalized medicine or of immunotherapy. She wasn't able to take advantage of the large data sets that are driving healthcare, drug interdiction, and, and targeting of, of great therapies. Uh, but today, we're seeing that. And it is not something that I'm taking lightly. I'm, I'm actually in data science because of this, this thing that happened in my family. And I'll tell you that when I see all of the great things that we're using AI for, I'm absolutely excited. And in terms of the international competition that's come up a couple of times today, are you confident that the U.S. is in the lead and can maintain that lead? I'm not, I'm not really going to speak to the uh, geopolitics of, of, of the uh, AI capability, although I will absolutely admit that geopolitics is an extremely important part of what we're doing. But if you take a look at the actions that Intel has taken over the past two years, we are growing our fabrication capabilities in Arizona, in Ohio, and around the world. We are absolutely focused on participating in the conversations around how the federal government is going to be able to take advantage of artificial intelligence and data science. You know, we helped to participate in the discussions around the CHIPS and Science Act in a meaningful way. And it's because we are absolutely sensitive to and want the U.S. to continue to move forward as a catalyst for AI adoption. Dr. Melvin Greer, Chief Data Scientist for Intel. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, and now we'll hand it back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello again for those just joining us. I am tech columnist Jeff Fowler. I do not have any more deep fake senators or three-legged cats for you. However, I have something that I think is even better. Two of the smartest people I know about artificial intelligence. On this side, we've got a tech culture reporter, Natasha Tiku, and then news analysis writer, Will Aramis. Uh, they have been leading our coverage of artificial intelligence here at The Post, and hopefully they can say the things out loud that maybe other people don't want to say about what's really going on. So let's get started. Uh, Will, I've got a question for you. Um, you are exploring and using all of this technology, trying to figure it out. What advances and capabilities of AI that you've seen in the last year have shocked you, surprised you, uh, alarmed you? So I've been shocked, surprised, and alarmed by just about everything that's come out since Midjourney and Dali, um, okay, so uh, including, including ChatGPT. I know that Natasha was not as shocked because she had been following more closely all the developments behind the scenes that led up to the, the sort of consumer launch of these generative AI products. Um, I think what's shocking about them is how human-like they seem. They mm -hmm. do things that 
we previously thought only humans could do and machines couldn't do. They can hold a conversation with us on just about any topic. They talk like Senator Schumer. Talk like Senator Schumer. They can draw a picture of anything, you know, a photorealistic image of just about anything. Um, and I think that's also, that's also the danger. I mean, in some ways, they're a realization of this idea that Alan Turing um, proposed 75 years ago of, of a, a machine that can uh, that, that can uh, fool us into thinking it's human, right? It's almost indistinguishable from, from a human, um, at least in certain contexts. And that's amazing, but it's also dangerous. It's also, I think, the problem, or at least part of the problem, um, is the capacity for deception. I mean, the, these, these generative AI tools, because they can pass themselves off as human, uh, raise all kinds of novel problems. Um, one of the recent ones that we wrote about at the Post was um, voice fakes, which you have demonstrated uh, uh, so helpfully earlier today. Um, but they're being used in the real world. So in the Slovakian elections that ha happened a few weeks ago, um, there was a, an audio clip that went around uh, virally on social media by Slovakian standards that seemed to show the progressive party leader discussing a scheme to buy votes from the country's marginalized Roma population. Um, and it sounded, you know, it sounded like him. It sounded like a prominent journalist that he was talking to. It uh, seems to have fooled lots of people. Whether it influenced the election, who knows? But we're going to see more and more of that because this technology is so good at, at mimicking uh, humans. Mm -hmm. So Natasha, we've been talking about how great a lot of this technology is. Um, but also, so I've been reviewing technology for a long time. And one thing that shocked me about some of what I've, I've tried with, especially with generative AI this year, is how often bad it is. I mean, we ask it to draw a cat, and it gets three legs. I was testing a, a chatbot for teenagers that gave me advice about how to hide pot from my parents. Um, used to be that when giant Silicon Valley companies put out products, they made sure they were perfect before they came out. Now we seem to be just fine with putting out stuff that has all sorts of problems. Why is that, Natasha? Like, why did they lose their shame about the quality of their products? <laughs> um, well, I think uh, you know that's something we've only seen in the past year. If yeah. you look at uh, you know. This technology has been around for a while. If you go all the way back to 2016, when Microsoft launched its chatbot, Tay. That's right. Um, this was really influential in the way that a lot of tech companies thought about what was acceptable, because within 16 hours or so, they had to take it down because uh, it was put up on Twitter, and it was spewing hate speech and defensive speech. Uh, trolls got to it, and it was really, uh, like you said, kind of shame. It's bad publicity. But what really changed in the past year is is not necessarily OpenAI's technology. Actually, Anthropic also was like just about to put out a chatbot, but it's it's its strategy mm. towards release and this um, argument that they've that they've um, championed that you need to put this technology out into the real world in order to really understand its harms. And that has opened the floodgates for Google, Microsoft, Meta, everyone else, not just lowering the bar to launching, but also keeping the products up when things are, are going wrong. You know, um, so it's an arms race? It's a race. It's a race. It's a race. Let's say it's a race. Yeah. I'll call it an Yeah, race. so that means, I mean, it means that, um, you know, the thing that's stopping risky products from coming out to the public is, um, you know, a company's appetite for bad publicity and, like, <laughs> their, and their competitive, um, competitive streak. So I think that's, 
that's somewhat alarming. So Will, we know these products have problems and yet companies are still buying them and using them and building our world around us with them. Why is that? What is the implication of that? Yeah, I mean, you, you'll hear AI enthusiasts who are uh, convinced that AI can do just about anything that a human can do, you know, just to, you know, sometimes better. Uh, and then you'll hear skeptics who say, well, I've, you know, they've, they've heard about all the flaws and the limitations of these systems, and they say, well, these will never be of use. You know, why, are we, why is there all this hype? It's, it's just a parlor trick. But I think the reality is that it actually doesn't have to be as good as a human at a task in order for some company to try replacing a human with it. I mean, it can just be, it doesn't have to be as better, it doesn't have to be as good, it can be cheaper and faster, right? I mean, the, the, I think the logic of, of disruption is relevant. The, the Clayton Christensen's idea of disruption was not that startups come along and do something better than the incumbents, it's that they come along and, and do something you know, that's, that's worse, but it's lightweight and it's cheaper, and, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing with AI. So you see, um, articles being written by AI um, uh, online, uh, you know, companies not in the Washington Post. Not in the Washington Post. Well, well, that's a good point because because if your if your business is an incumbent and you have a brand to protect, uh, you know, most incumbents I think are being pretty cautious with how they use generative AI in particular because they know it can go wrong and it can blow up in their face and, and that will damage the value of their brand, which is the value of the company. But if you're a startup, you're not worried about protecting the value of your brand. You're worried about can I do something in a new way? Can I find and you know, some, some margin or scale here that the incumbents can't do. And so you see now there are content companies. I interviewed one for a story I did that's put it using AI to write um, horoscopes, to do interpretations of dreams. And we're even seeing some that are using AI to uh, write news stories, sometimes bogus news stories, but they get clicks, they make money, and it's so cheap. It doesn't have to be good as long as you can get enough clicks to, to get the ad revenue or the affiliate link revenue or whatever it is. And how does that impact our economy then? when the web is being filled with cheap, possibly inaccurate stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think I think one of the big questions is how does it affect the the information economy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know we've we've had this system for 20 years where you go to Google and you look something up and it sends you to other websites uh, and and you can see the source of the information and you know who wrote it. Increasingly, people are going to be asking questions of AI, whether that's on Google or Bing or ChatGPT, and getting a response from AI and, and maybe cutting out the the middleman of the people who actually the professionals who actually create the content. Still so. worth clicking on those Washington Post stories, folks, just to put in a little plug. Okay, Natasha, so AI has to be trained. It has to learn. It's not a human, but it has to learn from somewhere. Where does the data come from that is feeding all of these, and what are the implications of that? Um, you know, there is actually very little understanding about how these machines function, right? How large language models in particular. But one thing we do know is that they, um, the, breakthrough, the breakthroughs that we've seen are a function of feeding them massive, massive amounts of data scraped from the web. And I recently wrote about a new project called the Data Provenance Initiative. And it took a look at um, 1,800 uh, of these fine-tuning models. That's, that's the models that are used at the end, or sorry, data sets that are used at the end, so they're a little bit smaller, and they found most of them are from North America and Western Europe. Mm. And we have seen um, some of the research coming out already that says 
that not only are the biases in that data then reflected in the outputs, but when it comes to text to image AI, like Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, DALI, stereotypes are amplified. So that means, you know, especially if it's being pushed as the technology of the future, the platform of the future, that we are encoding biases, mm. um, you know, possibly from outdated links on the internet. You know, these, these scrapes, uh, the web scrapes that they use are really indiscriminate. Um, and projects like the Data Provenance Initiative are starting to, um, starting to give us some light into the black box. And, but I think, you know, if you try out these tools, um, you can see the, the gender stereotypes, the racial stereotypes. I mean, it's mm -hmm. as simple as like the, you know, these very popular like headshot generators. Mm -hmm. They tend to sexualize Asian women and black women um, in order to like professionalize your image. They lighten your skin. Um, I tried one with myself and because I'm a white male with certain color hair, it turned me into wizards and Steve Jobs and all, I was not sexualized. Yes, that's the bias way. that we're worried about. <laughs> yeah, no, there is definitely bigger problems. Uh, I just point that out to say this is what it thought of me. So, okay, so bias is one of the problems with, uh, with these data sets, but then we have other questions. So uh, uh, do these companies have copyright to these things? Do they have rights to use them? Or are they taking them from us without our knowledge? What is the impact on our, our privacy? Will or Natasha, whoever wants to tackle that giant wormhole. Okay, well, I'm not a lawyer, so don't take okay. any of this as legal advice, but um, I think there is a perception that these questions are still up in the air. And um, in terms of our knowledge, that, that has certainly not been the case. Um, you know, we've seen lawsuits from book authors, from software coders, um, and from uh, individuals who say that their work was taken without consent compensation or credit, you know, oftentimes it's not even a money issue. They just want some attribution there. Um, so I think that, you know, the big companies they have been talking to, I've written recently about um, some of the negotiations they've been having um, with newspaper companies, with some of the websites that they have used uh, to be a big part of their training data. Um, and I think they're trying to lock something down before they have to wait for the outcome of lawsuits and legislation. Mm -hmm. I love that your work, that you focus on the data so much because I think people underestimate, the, you know, literally the output of an AI system is a function of the data that went into it. And the data that went into it is, is so often, you know, of, of murky or unknown provenance and quality. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the solutions, and you had asked earlier about, uh, about why are companies using some of these AI technologies despite their flaws, I think one of the approaches that uh, some more careful companies are looking at is can we train uh, these systems on our own data? And can we have the sort of the, the conversational interface and the sort of general language ability of a chat GPT, but can we make sure that when it gives substantive answers to something, it's using only data that we've, that we've vetted? Um, and, and so I think that's, you know, that's one of the uh, approaches in that to, to use AI in a maybe more responsible way. Right, I did a project recently where I pressed some of the, the biggest tech companies that we all use in our lives, the Facebooks and Instagrams and Googles and Gmails, and I said, okay, which of our data are you using to train? Um, your AI models, and some of the answers really shocked me. I don't know if folks know this, but Meta, the company that owns Instagram, took a billion of our Instagrams um, 
and use them to train an AI on how to make pictures. And they said they had every right to do that because those accounts were set to public, even if that's not necessarily what people had in mind when they were sharing a family photo on Instagram that it was going to be um, teaching an AI how to draw a family photo. Um, so OK, uh, we've got limited time here, so I want to throw in one more question. Natasha, uh, we received a question from the audience. Uh, Wilson Reyron from Brazil asks, uh, what are the philosophical and ethical implications of creating artificial intelligence capable of generating art and literature, challenging your understanding of creativity? Yeah, is this art? What, what happens to creativity? Um, <laughs> You've got a minute. Yes, okay. <laughs> no problem. Oh, cool. Um, I think that you know these um, these norms are currently in flux, and that's why we have seen, as I mentioned, those lawsuits. I think that um, creators, creative people, artists, um, you know, Hollywood directors, everybody has seen what happened with the last phase of the internet, and they want to be sure that they can talk about how they feel about whether or not this is original, whether or not this is creative, which. Um, you know, there has been a lot of pushback against that. But at the same time, um, a lot of the boosters of these large language models, they have increasingly been talking about these systems as though they're anthropomorphized in some way. You know, so they, they talk also about like the rights of these models to read and access information Whoa. in the same way that you and I do. So I think AI that, rights. Yes, yes. Um, goes, always goes right, right to the... Um, and so I think we're going to see like a real, um, you know, real battle of worldviews as we try to grapple with um, what this means and you know, what it means for art, creativity, originality. Natasha and Will, we're going to have to leave it there. Y'all should read their stuff in the post. It's incredible. And thank you for joining us today. For the audience, don't go anywhere. Our next guest will be out here in just a few moments. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Is your wallet a little lighter than usual after the holiday season? Consider it money well spent, because you deserve to live your best life, and the Chime Checking Account wants to help you live yours to the fullest. A little extra money goes a long way, which is why the Chime Checking Account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members no monthly fees, and access to over 60,000 easy-to-find and fee-free ATMs. You even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go, including sending and receiving money fee-free with friends that aren't even on Chime. Sign up for Chime today for you and your wallet. Get started at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply.